Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Parole Law and Reform, Gina Mitchell, a member of the City Bar's Criminal Advocacy Committee, interviews Professor Steve Zeidman, a criminal defense attorney and the director of the Criminal Defense Clinic at CUNY School of Law. Attorney Michelle Lewin, the executive director of the Parole Preparation Project in New York, and Jose Saldana, director of the Release Aging People in Prison campaign. The opinions expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the New York City Bar Association. Here's Gina Mitchell. Michelle, if we can start by just asking you, tell us a little bit about parole as it is in the city and the state at the moment. Sure. Um, thank you so much for having us. It's really great to be here tonight. Um, so a couple things that I want to tell you, and for some of the listeners, this might be, you know, repeat information or things you already know, but for some of you, maybe not. Um, right. So in New York State, we have two kinds of sentences. We have indeterminate sentences and determinate sentences. Uh, and for those who are serving indeterminate sentences, um, you know, whether it's a range of five to ten years, you know, two to four years, whatever it might be, um, you become eligible for release right when you hit that minimum sentence. Um, and the way you are essentially able to secure release is through the Board of Parole. The Board of Parole is the administrative agency that is part of the Department of Corrections in New York State uh, that is the body that is responsible for making decisions about who gets to go home, right? So. For people who are serving shorter indeterminate sentences, like five to ten years, for example, um, people who, you know, hit that five-year mark become eligible and eventually will be released. And if they're not granted parole by the Board of Parole, they get out at ten years, right? That's it. But for those serving sentences, indeterminate life sentences, uh, where they have a range like 15 to life or 25 to life, you become eligible for parole at that first number, but essentially can be held indefinitely by the Board of Parole because you do not have a maximum sentence. Um, so that's a sort of long way of saying that in New York State, the Board of Parole is the body that is responsible for determining who is serving an indeterminate sentence can come home and when, um, and what are the conditions of their supervision also. Uh, and so for a very long time in New York State, the Board of Parole was made up of commissioners uh, who were former prosecutors, law enforcement, uh, people who'd worked in victim services. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, with that group of people being the, the kind of determinants for who's coming home, uh, the vast majority of people were denied parole. Um, and over the years, you know, due to advocacy from groups like the Parole Preparation Project and, and RAP, um, we've been able to kind of transform the, the parole board and who's on the board. But the release rates still remain at about 40 and 50 percent. Um, so half of people who are going before the board are still getting denied parole. Um, and just to give you a quick sense of kind of how the process, process works, um, people who have reached their minimum sentences, right, are then scheduled for a parole interview. Uh, they are then uh, going before oftentimes or most times a video conference system where they're being interviewed by either two or three of the commissioners who are on the board uh, and they are essentially given 15 20 25 minutes to make their case and to answer questions about um, their crimes to answer questions about their experiences in prison and what they've done and about their release plans uh, about their release plans um, and then they're sent away and the board makes a determination based on that interview and, and based on the written materials that the person has submitted and the other you know record that the Department of Corrections has submitted um, that hopefully the commissioners are reading uh, and we go from there. And so there's a lot of kind of nitty gritty that we can get into but that's kind of just the overview of the parole system. I probably left some things out that maybe Steve and Jose want to fill in but. I would add one legal piece just as taking the next step. If 
you are denied parole, you have a right to an appeal, an administrative appeal. Um, here's the great irony. Who do you appeal to? You appeal to the very same parole board, which from a lawyer's perspective is, is it's not even, I don't even know what word it is. It's beyond ironic. So not surprisingly, about 91% of the time, the parole board affirms its own decisions. On those rare occasions when they reverse, it's usually because of a procedural error. And once you get that administrative appeal denial, you can finally get to court in front of a judge. But now you're talking about a year down the road before you're first getting heard by a judge. By the time you might get a decision in front of a judge, it could be two years when you're already back for your next regularly scheduled parole hearing. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of this built-in impossibility to meaningfully challenge the actions of the board. Yeah. And can I ask, um, Professor Seidman, perhaps you can answer this, what is the legal test that um, prisoners need to satisfy or you know, demonstrate to the board in order to be given parole? There are a series of factors. There's a statutory regime. There's a regulatory regime. It is so vague. There are factors that the board must consider, but the courts have basically said they can emphasize one more than the other, although they have to consider them all. And I know this sounds like a, I'm trying to avoid the question. The, the, the short, the long and short of it is if they want to deny parole, they can use certain buzzwords. It will deprecate the seriousness of the crime. Um, it would somehow impact the welfare of society. There's a reasonable probability you wouldn't lead a law-abiding life. These are meaningless terms. They're vague. So there's no hard and fast standard. The thing I'll say, too, is that, you know, the factor in the executive law that the board relies on the most is the nature of a person's crime. So you have people, especially for people who are serving life sentences, who are appearing before the board after 25, 30, 40 years, right, of being in prison and, and having decades away from that original crime, and the board is still looking to the facts of a person's original case, right, things that happen that can never change, right, facts that can absolutely never change, and the board is essentially saying the facts of those, of those crimes are of that crime are just too serious for us to consider releasing you. No matter how much rehabilitative work you've done, no matter how much you're able to express remorse or how you know rich of a reentry plan you have, how many supporters you have on the outside. So the issue really, you know, for, for decades has been that commissioners are are so backward looking and so unable and unwilling to look to who a person is today and what they've done. Um, and, and I think what I feel and I imagine what we all feel is that people should be defined by who they are today and, and, and what work they've done to, to come to terms with their crime and to confront you know, who they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, yeah. And Jose, as a formerly incarcerated person and now an organizer working for RAP in the field of advocacy, are these common problems that people experience, this tension between looking backwards to the crime and looking forwards towards future and rehabilitation? I'd like to go back a little bit on you asked a question about the parole board. Five years ago, you didn't stand a shot. I mean, just about everybody was being denied. It didn't matter what the crime was. Now, be because of advocacy work, the, the dial shifted a little bit. The rate of release has increased. But at its best, right now, I think the best way to describe the parole board process is that it's a crapshoot. If you get the right commissioner, then you stand a shot. 
in my case, I just got the right commissioner. A newly appointed commissioner, she was appointed four months before I went to the parole board. She asked me one question about the crime that I committed in 1979. And after that, she said, now let's talk about what you've done with your life the last 38 years. And she released me because she was measuring who I was today, not who I was in 1979. I know someone who just went to the parole board and was granted release, but after 47 years. So other people, if you get the wrong commissioner who does not embrace rehabilitation, obviously, because they don't look at the rehabilitative endeavors. They don't look at what the person does. I mean, the, the founder of RAP, the Release Aging People in Prison campaign, you know, he had four college degrees, two masters. He created the most effective program to address the AIDS, HIV crisis in the 80s and 90s. This program has such great value that it's really facilitated by incarcerated people in every facility in the state of New York today. That's the value of this program. But the parole board didn't attach any value to that. None whatsoever. They always referred to the crime that he committed in 1978. Denied him parole 18 times, for 18 years. Gave him an additional 18 years. The judge didn't give him 18 years to life. The judge gave him 15 years to life. He could have gave him the max of 25. He gave him 15 but the parole board added an additional 18 years before they finally released them. Yeah, and I think one thing, too, that, that's so significant about these commissioners is that their appointments are incredibly political, right? Commissioners are appointed by the governor and confirmed by the New York State Senate, and so the sort of governor's will is what determines who is in those positions and who's making those determinations. So under Pataki, right, the vast majority of appointments were very conservative, very tough on crime commissioners. And I will say that Governor Cuomo has appointed a few progressive people, but the vast majority of people who remain on the board still embody that that tough on crime approach and still see people um, you know, as as their crimes and as what they did so many years ago. Um, and I think something that Jose is sort of speaking to, too, is kind of the arbitrary nature of it all also, right? It depends so much on which commissioner you get, what kind of mood they're in that day, whether or not they read your paperwork, and whether or not they want to release you. And you could have two people who have identical or similar crimes and done similar things in prison in terms of their accomplishments and their reentry plans, and one could get denied and one could be released. And, of course, race plays a huge factor in this, right? The racial disparities between black people and white people, you know, in terms of release rates are really, really um, evident. Can I ask, why don't we have attorneys assisting or representing people in parole hearings? There's a, well, we have the Parole Preparation Project now assisting people as they prepare for their parole interview, but they don't have a right to have an advocate present, let alone a lawyer. You know, just someone to work with. Some people. You know, I, I just keep thinking about this, and as I'm listening to Jose and thinking about uh, Farid and other people, you get 15 to life, 18 to life, and you wait for this moment, and then you find out it's by videotape, 
and your nerves, I, I can, it's impossible to imagine if you haven't been there, and then 10, 15 minutes, you're out. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't it make just logical sense that you should have some support inside, whether, you know, legal, non just someone to make sure that all the points you want to make are coming across, because then you're, then you're done. You walk out of there, was your 10 minutes. And I've heard from countless people over and over, reliving everything they said. If I'd only said this, if I'd only said that. And the idea that you wouldn't have someone there kind of working with you to make sure you make the points you want to make, it's unfathomable. To me, and I say this from a very legal perspective, I think much of what the board does is extra legal. And just to go back for a moment to the seriousness of the offense, talking to a lot of people, there's an intuitive sense, I think, that everyone has that, well, that's logical. You're coming up for parole, shouldn't we take into account the seriousness of your offense? The problem with that is it's already been taken into account. A legislature sets a minimum and a maximum, and a judge determines what your sentence should be within that statutory regime. So let's say they say it should be 15 to life. And then the board, based on a 15-minute interview, says, you know what, we think your crime is so we're going to give you more, which is uh, unfathomable. Again, I don't see where's the legal justification for it. I just want to give you one other point about this, about parole, something that I think comes out of what Michelle and Jose were both saying. Just think about this as well. If you step back and think, what should a parole system be? So let's say you get 25 to life, and you get in front of the board, and they say, nature of the crime, serious crime, denied. You're going to get a new hearing within two years by law, but what are you supposed to do in those two years? What guidance have they given you? If they deny you because the crime was serious, what's the point of an? If it's a murder, it's going to be serious in two years. It's going to be serious in 20 years. What's the point? And to me, that just shows that that can't be the basis for a denial. And just contrast that if someone is denied parole because the board says something like, you know what, you have a lot of very recent violent incidents. So we're going to deny you parole. We'll see you in two years. That person has an idea what they have to deal with. But when they deny you parole because they say the nature of the crime, what do you do in those two years? What do you possibly do? And for me, that just makes it so plain that it should not be a factor. I really do believe it's extra legal. I think when the board, they're usurping the authority of a legislature and a judge, And unfortunately, I think the only way we can address this is with a very clear legislative reform, just removing that as a factor in any way, shape, or form from consideration. Can I ask about ComStat? Perhaps, Michelle, you could speak a little bit about the use of these sort of risk assessment reports Mm. in parole applications. They're meant to be an objective tool that moves away from this kind of politics and subjective driven decision making, but is that the reality? Yeah, so the risk assessment instrument that the parole board uh, is essentially looking at when they are evaluating people is called the COMPASS risk assessment instrument. Um, And there's a lot of issues with COMPASS. I mean, the first is that uh, I think it's extremely racially biased and has never really been a validated risk assessment tool. Um, But on top of that, you have a lot of user error when it's being done by the counselors and staff inside the Department of Corrections. The risk assessment instrument is literally administered, you know, inside the counselor's office and the person walks in and the counselor goes, okay, answer these questions, yes or no, and they're just typing them into a computer. And so you have a whole host of administrative errors that come in where people's records are being, you know, fumbled, people are suddenly you know, at risk for prison misconduct when they haven't had a disciplinary ticket in 25 years or one ticket that they had for having a hot plate on suddenly becomes, you know, the determining factor for a high-risk score. Um, so I think there's a lot of problems with the Compass Risk Assessment. I think that, um, you know, 
as a as a tool that I want to use in the criminal justice system. It's not what I imagine, and I don't think it's what any advocates imagine. But there is this sort of strange thing that happens where the vast majority of people who are serving very long sentences and who are, you know, going before the board and getting hit over and over again have the absolute lowest risk on their compass assessment instruments because they've been in for so long, because they're aging out of crime, because they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right? And so in a sense... You know, if the board were to follow the compass risk assessment instrument, which they are supposed to do, especially according to the 2017 guidelines that were just released, um, then they would be releasing people who are serving these very long sentences and who have been in prison for decades. Um, but so it, it's sort of like a high compass you know, score works against you, but a low compass score really does nothing to support your release. Um, and on top of that, it's an incredibly flawed tool. So that's those are my feelings. Steve has maybe some more about the compass. Well, I would just add, it's another example of the lack of any kind of due process. Mm. There's a regulation. If you think about it again, there you are, that person coming up for the parole board, your, your moment that you've been waiting for for decades. When do you get access to your compass report? There's actually a regulation that says you're entitled to have it before your parole interview. Do you know how the Board of Parole determines what before means? The day before. So you have no way to challenge it, no meaningful way to try and get corrections. And in fact, when I raised this with the lawyers in the Board of Parole, they said, well, of course you have an option. What's the option? You can ask for a postponement of the event you've been waiting for for 10, 20, whatever it is, and you know, put it off for a few months to try and correct it. So it's fraught with all the problems Michelle mentioned, but also procedurally it um, defies logic. Perhaps I can ask this question at this point the discussion it seems as though when we're talking about parole reform we're really talking about there being a a cultural shift in the community more broadly and it seems as though a lot of the advocacy that all three of you have been engaged in recently has been aimed at legislative reform but also a lot of community activism would you agree with that yes we're, we're involved in both legislative advocacy and community advocacy. Uh, we do a lot of community organizing. The community supports, I mean, fundamental changes in the standard of review. Because all these catchphrases, releasing you, pose a threat to public safety. In my case, I'm appearing before the parole board in my 60s. And at that age, I pose the least risk to public safety. I have the lowest recidivist rate to come back to prison for a new charge. But they, they, their decision defies all this evidence. Mm -hmm. In fact, in one of my hearings, a commissioner actually told me this. He says, well, in my opinion, this was his words. He says, in my opinion, at your age, a man in his 60s, got over 30 years in prison, you post the least risk to come back. Those are his words. And turns around and denies me and hits me with two years. So the community believes in rehabilitation for the most part. No matter what the crime is, people in our community believe that a person can redeem and transform his life. And that's what we, we pushing for reform that reflects that. That reflects that people, no matter how heinous or how bad the crime was, that people 
in prison are human beings and they have the capacity to transform their life and be better human beings. And that's how they should be measured when they appear before the parole board. Mm-hmm. I think also, and I think this is very much a part of what you're saying, is that a huge part of this narrative shifting work that I feel like we're doing is about this question of violence, right? I think there's a lot of myths around you know, criminal justice reform, that if we just release everybody who's you know, serving a sentence for a drug crime or a nonviolent crime, then suddenly the prison populations will be at a, be at a reasonable you know, amount and, and we can kind of be done with it. But the truth is, is the majority of people who are serving mm-hmm. time in prison, especially in New York State, are serving time for a violent crime. And I think if we're serious about talking about, you know, reducing incarceration, ending incarceration, we have to talk about violence and what it means. And we have to talk about, you know, people who harm people, not only as human beings, but, you know, as people who deserve a chance to come home to their families and to be assets in our community. I mean, I think that's, Jose is such a wonderful and perfect example of that, but he's certainly not an aberration, right? There are so many people who have come home from prison and, who are violence interrupters, right, who are working with other young people um, to stop violence in in the streets or to stop violence in in intimate partner relationships and whatever they might be. And I feel like we need those elders out here with us to teach, you know, to teach us about personal transformation, to teach us about accepting responsibility, to teach us about remorse. Um, And and I want to encourage us all not to be afraid of violence, right, to be open in our conversations about it and to say, okay, this is a person who took a life and and how do we as a community want to respond to that? Do we think that locking somebody up for 40 years and letting them out when they're 65 and, you know, having them pass away five, 10 years after that is what we want for this world? It's not what I want and it's not, I don't think, what the vast majority of communities want. I think, Professor, you made a really interesting point at our last meeting around the, the difference between parole being granted and being eligible for parole. I think there's an assumption that people are simply going to be granted parole, you know, regardless, just because they make an application, that they'll become eligible and somehow just be granted parole. Um, There seems to be confusion around this difference between, you know, eligibility as opposed to being granted parole. Right, and what you hear from a lot of people And I think it's very problematic. When I read police officers or the head of police unions saying this person must never be released or the board should be chastised, in fact, the law says you do your minimum sentence, you are eligible for parole. So they're actually telling the board to ignore, to flout the law and just blanketly deny. And it's how ironic for law enforcement to be arguing that the board should ignore the law. So what it means is you are eligible. That is the law. So you you get 25 to life, whatever the crime is, you are eligible for parole, and we have to, we meaning the board, has to evaluate how have you lived those 25 years. And if certain segments are unhappy with that, that's their own issue. Let them go try and change the law. But the idea that somehow people being released is outside the law, like someone's, you know, subverting the law, no, quite the contrary. They are following exactly what the law requires. And just on another note about that, you know, one of the things we hear about all the time is community opposition. And I, this was to Michelle's point, like, how do we define what that community is or who is that constituency? And again, to me, it's one of those things that on some level when people hear it, it has an intuitive sense. Should the board consider constituency groups? 
so-called community opposition. I have a petition with 10,000 signatures opposing parole. On the face of it, it sounds logical, except if you step back, you realize we're turning parole decisions into a popularity contest. Should it be social media? How many likes do you get on Facebook? Or we can, how many people retweet deny parole? Which is really what that is suggesting, as opposed to saying the board should be an independent, impartial group of people with the right kind of diverse backgrounds and experience to evaluate who the person is today. So from my perspective, it shouldn't be about who screams the loudest. And that's the danger with this so-called community opposition. What about uh, you know victims? Where do their voices fit into this? And can we can we assume that victims are always against parole? Is that your experience? It's funny. I was just going to yeah. say something about victims. I mean, I, I want to say that we very much honor the experiences of victims. Like we are mm. not here to say that you know victims shouldn't be heard or that they shouldn't have a part in in um, this process or that they don't deserve healing and. Um, accountability, right? I think that's something that I want to make clear. And I also want to make clear that a lot of people who are incarcerated are also victims themselves, right? Whether it was victims of violence, you know, when they were young, before they went in, whatever it might be. And and I think this distinction, you know, that often happens between like, quote, unquote, perpetrators and quote, unquote, victims is a false one, right? The vast majority of people in prison could have been on either side of that gun, right, depending on on the circumstance and what happened. And I don't think that there's actually so much difference between people who are harmed and people who harm. Oftentimes, they come from the same families, the same communities, the same neighborhoods. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think victims are a very important part of this conversation. And I think one of the very special things about our work, and this is just really recent for us, as we've started partnering with victims' rights organizations and organizations that are really trying to uplift the voices of people who have experienced violence. And there's so much overlap between our work and so much solidarity that we can um, sort of show each other. And that feels exciting to me. Um, and like a new a new frontier and actually something that focuses more on healing harm than on punishment. I, you know, this, this, I, have, I have mixed feelings about this. First, let me say that the only time the parole board gives any value to the victim's impact statement is when they oppose parole. If the victim's representatives write to the parole board we think this guy should be released. He served enough time. They ignore that. And, and, and there are, two, th there are two, two things that they consider. The prosecutor's statement and the victim's statements. And I think these two statements, they're, they're, they're toward punishment. If the parole process is about punishment, then they have a say. But the parole process is not about punishment. The parole process determines whether someone has been rehabilitated to the point where he no longer poses a threat to public safety. If this person can now, can we release this person with the feeling that he will live, law, he will live a life of a law-abiding citizen? And, and that's, that's the whole thing about parole. Parole is to determine someone's degree of rehabilitation and how much has he learned, how much remorse he's expressed, how much responsibility he has taken, and what has he done with this. If you inflict that process with, with factors of punishment, you, 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 know, you, 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 you kind of disease the process. So in my opinion, the victims, with all due respect, they, they had their say already. And at this point, it's not about them anymore.
But, and let me say this, because I spent years developing victim awareness programs while I was inside. I've developed victim awareness programs that are being taught in five maximum security facilities right now. So it's not that we don't care. You know, for us to actually rehabilitate ourselves, we have to develop insight into the harm that we inflicted on people. We have to do that. That's part of the process. But it shouldn't be used against us at this point. At this point, let's, let's just address the issues of, of, of who we are today. Because the victim statement doesn't speak to who we are today. They speak to who I was 38 years ago. And, and for, in other people's cases, 47 years ago. Let's speak to who the person is today. There was also a national study that was done recently um, where I think something like two-thirds of people who identified as victims uh, preferred um, and wanted some sort of rehabilitative process that didn't involve punishment and long-term incarceration. Um, and there was a lot of other sort of components of the study, but I think that's a really incredible result, right? That's a really incredible thing and really telling that, one, that the victims community, like the community of victims is is not as we perceive them to be, right? And and I think actually have very, um, very, uh, yeah, very compassionate ideas about what should happen to people who've harmed them or their family members. Yeah, the other piece of this, and this is just, I'm throwing this out there, are there any researchers who are paying attention? <laughs> but one of the questions that came up before was the impact of race. And the focus, people zero in on the race of the person seeking parole. But in my experience, relatively limited, just given the number, there are about 12,000 hearings a year, it becomes pretty inescapable from my viewpoint that the race of the victim matters greatly in a disparate way. So black victims' lives, people of color lives, are they treated, are they elevated to the same level that a white person's life is as the victim, I do not believe that to be the case. And I think if anybody did some sort of a longitudinal study, they would find that as well. But it's just another way of saying the, the victim impact statement, again, it's one of those things that we all understand. I think what Jose said, you know, the people that I've worked with, part of the, part of the parole interview is folks talking about recognizing the harm they caused. It's, it's people that, no, no one is saying it's not an issue, it's not a factor to be considered. And the board wants to see insight, and so many men have developed insight into this. And to me, just, you know, if I can just go on a bit, I want to emphasize as well, what we're talking about here are parole denials to people who are so ready to be released, people who have done everything. There's this idea that when you talk about parole reform, people are saying, oh, you just want to empty the prisons. And in fact, there are a lot of people who are prison abolitionists, and we can have that conversation as well. But what we're talking about is when someone goes before the board and you get a phone call or a family member says, can you help? And you look at what they've done over those 25 years, and you say, there's nothing else this person could possibly do. I don't even know how to help you. They've done every mandated program. They've gone above and beyond. They have virtually no disciplinary infractions. They have the support of people inside the prison. They have an amazing reentry plan waiting for them, family, and they're denied. And that's really, you know, to me, ultimately, there's a whole lot of things to focus on. But I want to be very clear. We're talking about people who on every objective measure that you can come up with should be released and yet they get denied over and over and over again. What does that say to everybody else inside that prison? The futility and despair that it just promotes? It is be, it's counterproductive to the individual, it's counterproductive to the, it's counterproductive to community, society, you can go on and on. 
certainly just on this issue of you know morale in prisons. I know that John McKenzie case received a lot of media coverage. Um, he committed suicide after being denied parole, I think, ten times. Certainly when I was working in women's prisons, inmates were aware of that and it had an impacted on them. But, Jose, from your work, do, do incidents like that have a ripple effect in terms of, you know, people losing hope? A- after John committed suicide because he was denied parole at his 10th board, 10th, he's 70 years old, 42 years in prison, and, and he's denied. That, you know, that was so unjust to, to, to that decision that I know people that, and we follow these cases. We follow parole commissioners. We know who they are. And people refuse to go to the board. If one of those commissioners sat at the board they appearing, they said, no, I'm postponing. This guy's going to kill me. That's the attitude. This guy's going to kill me. Because people know John McKenzie. They know the type of man he was. They know him better than, than any. You can't, you know, when you, you're in prison for decades, this, this, you're, not, you're not faking. You know, you do this for four decades, you are not faking. And everybody respected this elderly white man. Everybody. And 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 you, he he became our martyr. And, and even right now, when we speak about him, we speak to him as, as he's our martyr. I think also, you know, death in prison is something that doesn't get talked about enough in this work. I feel like everybody's like, well, New York State doesn't have the death penalty. Nobody's dying in prison, right? Nobody's being executed, and that's not true at all. You have almost 300 people who are serving life without parole sentences, another, what, 650 who are doing virtual life sentences where their sentences are so long, like 50 to life or 75 to life, that they will never see the parole board in their natural life. So you have about a 1,000 people who are basically guaranteed to die in prison um, if we don't do something, whether that's increasing release rates and changing the law about who is eligible for parole interviews. Um, you know, John is, is a devastating story and was an incredible human being, and there are so many other people like him who have come home and died, right, just a couple months after being home because they were sick inside and never got adequate care and did an extra 25 years on their sentence, and other people who've died inside, you know, from a heart attack or whatever it might be. Um, I mean, you have nursing homes inside prisons. You have graveyards on prison grounds. That's a harrowing reality, right, that there are people who are literally cutting the grass of a graveyard on Doc's property, um, that's a really painful reality that I don't feel like most New Yorkers know about. Um, and I feel like that's what, for us, at least this work is about, is is making sure that nobody dies in prison and that people have long and fruitful lives on the outside. Um, yeah. Well, can I ask at this point, you know, what are the reforms on the table? I know you've been up in Albany in the last week or two weeks mm-hmm. um, advocating for these reforms. What is on the table, and how is it going to change things? Well, the first, we, we, we're demanding, and, and that's what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a demand. We, we just can't beg for this. This is, this is so urgent that we have to demand it. That, that the governor fully staffed the parole board with diversified commissioners. 
You know, it doesn't. It, you can't, it can't be top heavy with law enforcement, ex prosecutors, a diversified group of commissioners from the clergy, social services, you know, educators, people who first believe in rehabilitation, and and our legislative initiative is the first one is the fair and timely parole bill. Fair because this is the diversified commissioners. Timely because the person appeared before his first parole board, and there should be a presumption that if he fulfills all his mandatory programs, and, and in most cases, people go beyond just the mandatory programs, then they should be evaluated on who they are today. That should be the standard for that parole board interview. And if it's clear cut that this person does not pose a threat to public safety, and that threat should be measured on who the person is, not who the person was 25 years ago, who the person is. That's why the threat should be measured. And the second bill that we're promoting is what we call the elder parole bill. And that provides for someone who's 55 years old, and, and, and 55 may not seem that old, but in prison it is old. With all the stress and the environment, you know, a person 55 years old is probably closer to 65 and has already served 15 years. No matter what his sentence is, he, would, should, he should be provided with a meaningful opportunity to appear before the parole board. Not that he's, no guarantees but he should at least be evaluated by the parole board to see if he's ready to be released. And 15, it, it's, 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 may not seem like a long time, but it is. And it does not, it didn't take me 38 years to rehabilitate myself. And I say that literally, to rehabilitate myself because the Department of Correction doesn't rehabilitate people. We do it ourselves. So it didn't take me 38 years. And it doesn't take people 47 years, 42. You know, John McKenzie was long. He was ready 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So, you know, an elderly person, and, and the reason why rap stresses the elderly is because elderly, elderly incarcerated people helped me transform my life. Most of them that I came up under have passed away. There are some that are still waiting over 45 years in. And these, these elderly people have been pioneers, like Mujahid Farid, the founder of rap, pioneers, mentors, educators for decades, literally decades. You go to a prison classroom, you'll see the, the teacher who's hired by the Department of Corrections sitting down reading a comic book reading a newspaper or a book. And the elder man that's incarcerated, he's at the blackboard teaching basic math. So these, are, these men have been doing this for decades. Give them the opportunity for parole. That's all we're asking for, just the opportunity. If I could add something to that, to the extent that anybody thinks it's a radical proposal, um, they should know it's far from radical. I just, again, given that we are in at the city bar, there's a proposal from the Model Penal Code, the American Law Institute, 
which every law student in America is familiar with the model penal code, and they came out with their first ever revisions of the sentencing provisions. It took them 17 years. It's a 700-page document, and they have something they call the second look proposal, which they're urging every state to adopt. And what it says is after you've served 15 years, regardless your sentence, regardless your crime, you should have an opportunity for release, an opportunity to make your case. And the theory behind it is a sentence once imposed doesn't remain just and appropriate and fair in perpetuity. And of course, we should take a second look in 15 years. So in fact, the bill that's being proposed in Albany right now is, uh, when you compare it with what's out there, it's very moderate but incredibly important. I want to mention two other things about legislation. There's um, one of the other problems, and this gets us a little bit into the weeds, so I'll try and do this very briefly, but when your parole is denied, and again, I used, the, I used very deliberately the phrase extra-legal because I do believe a lot of these are extra-legal, unlawful, they don't fit even within the statutory scheme. When you finally get to a judge, if you're able to do this, in particular pro se, you fight this on your own, it's 15 months later, and a judge says, you know what, you're right. The denial was arbitrary and capricious. And when I say this to lawyers, I turn to them and say, what do you think is the remedy now? And you know what lawyers say to me? So I guess the judge orders release if it was unlawful. And in the present situation, all a judge can order is a do-over, literally, a de novo hearing. And then you know what happens? The same thing again. There have been so many people that have been through this winning in front of a judge. So one of the critical bills, and the judiciary is calling for this because the judges feel like they have handcuffs is to give judges the power to grant release. If the parole board has denied parole unlawfully and illegally, the appropriate remedy is for a judge to say, I am directing that you be released. And that's critical. And the last thing I'll say about legislation, and I hesitate to say this just because I think the reforms need to go in first, but ultimately, and I, I, the reason I hesitate, because you can see how this leads to commissions, and commissions just take forever, but the entire parole scheme needs an overhaul. It needs dramatic overhaul. It's filled with vagueness, and I think most important, we need a scheme that clearly, deliberately, and expressly puts due process, a modicum of fairness, basic fundamental fairness, into the statutory scheme. Because right now you have to look <laughs> near and far to try and find any semblance. And so it's, it's, it's an antiquated structure that just needs a, a drastic overhaul. Can I, before we wrap up, make a final pitch to people who are listening? Is that all right? <laughs> so, um, I'm going to make a final pitch, too. <laughs> <laughs> Steve will have the final, final pitch. I think Jose's going to make the Actually, final, final pitch. <laughs> I'll make the first final pitch. Um, so there's three of us around the table right now, or four of us with our moderator here. Um, and I think there's sort of three really big ways that attorneys uh, who are listening, or really anyone who's listening, can get involved. Um, the first is through the Parole Preparation Project. Uh, we work with people who are serving life sentences in New York State prisons, uh, basically supporting them and collaborating with them as they're preparing to go before the board. You do not have to be an attorney to do that work. Um, we're not engaging in attorney-client relationships, so anybody uh, who's interested in supporting people in parole uh, can come. We have our next training in April. You can see more about that on our website. Um, and then another way that attorneys can get involved is Steve and I, uh, along with a colleague of our, ours, Martha Rayner, at Fordham, um, 
are working on, was this going to be your pitch, Steve? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We're working on uh, a pro bono initiative where essentially we train attorneys to represent people in parole appeals, right? So in that initial administrative appeal that Steve talked about and in that Article 78 petition um, and, you know, in Supreme Court. And this law is, or parole law, I think, is a very active um, issue right now. I think there's a lot of issues being litigated, a lot of sort of buzz around this. And it's a really um, intense amount of work and a really, I think, wonderful way to support people in the parole process. So those two things are, I think, very important. And then the third is is getting involved through RAP. Um, being a part of our advocacy work and being a part of our community organizing and joining us for our coalition meetings uh, and joining us in Albany when we go to meet with policymakers uh, and meet with people in the governor's office to talk about these really important issues. Um, so those are three great ways for lawyers and non-lawyers to get involved. The piece I'd like to add as well, you know, everybody now, we're familiar, I say everybody, I do think it's a national awareness of mass incarceration, that there's a crisis. And the question becomes, what do we do about it? And most of the laws and reforms tend to be prospective. They don't affect the 2.3 million in in the United States, and they really don't affect the 50,000 in New York State Prison. New Yorkers might be surprised that we have 9,000 people serving life sentences. We're one of a handful of states that mete out life sentences to such a degree. And if we are going to meaningfully address the crisis, if we are serious about it, we have to talk about decarceration. And we have two mechanisms available to deal with the fact that we have so many people serving life sentences. One we've talked about is parole. But I just want to mention there's another avenue, and it's clemency. And people, when I'm talking about clemency, when Michelle says how many people are serving life without parole or de facto life without parole, so you're 18 years old and you get 80 to life on a felony murder. You know when you see the parole board? (coughs) When you're 98 years old, you have to serve the 80. There are so many people who forget about parole, parole reform, they are, they are sentenced to die in prison. And their only out is clemency. I just want to add that uh, life without parole or virtual life without parole, the numbers they give 80 years to life, 115 years to life, these sentences are inhumane. And, and they pose a moral issue. And, and the faith-based community has to get involved and putting a stop to these type of sentences. It's the same manner that they did to get involved in the civil rights movement. This is the moral issue of our times. And it has to be stopped because the people who are getting these type of sentences are the people of color. Thank you so much for joining us this evening and for speaking so in so much detail and with such passion about the topic of parole. Um, and we look forward to seeing the work being done by the Parole Project, by Professor Zeidman in his various capacities, and by RAP. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you so thanks. much for the thanks. opportunity. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. To find out more about the City Bar's positions on a wide variety of policy issues, visit our website at nycbar.org. And find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris. 